Welcome everyone to series two of Six Queens. We made it another series. Yay! Yay! Before we get into the nitty gritty of the English Reformation, which we're actually really looking forward to, we just want to take a minute to thank everybody for sticking with us. Or, um, I mean, maybe you're binging this in five years. I don't know. But you you made it to series two. Uh, so thank you for sticking with us. But especially all you people who are following us in real time and who have followed us on Twitter and Instagram and who comment and like our posts and everyone who's subscribed and all the people who have listened, especially uh, left us reviews on Apple. It is so appreciated. It's it's We're having a great time doing this just as two friends, so actually getting input from outside world is really nice and very affirming. So thank you all for that. Nice to know we're not crazy and that it's just us two talking to ourselves. And though it may seem modest to some other podcasts, we're actually very excited about how many people have streamed us since we first launched in October 2021. We've had almost 500 streams on all of our platforms, which Again, it probably seems laughable and modest to some other people, but we're really excited about it. And actually, we've had a fair bit of attention from around the world. We've had listeners in the U.S. and the U.K., but also Canada, Australia, Finland, France, New Zealand, Austria, Spain, and the Netherlands. Again, hello, everyone. Put up a seat. Grab a cup of tea. I know. I just, I, I, I'm very flattered. Um, and shout out to the people from Finland. You were like our, our day ones. Um, I feel very attached to the whatever listeners we have in Finland. <laughs> Make yourself known. We'd like to get to know. We, well, we like getting to know everyone anyway, especially on Twitter. So give us a follow if you fancy it. So yeah, just uh, everyone who's reached out, who's given us a follow, given us a listen, reached out to us on socials. We really appreciate it, and we. Thank you because your your feedback and your attention and your your love and your input has, you know, really allowed us to do a second series and we're really looking forward to it. I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. I'm I'm excited about the series. It's heavy, but it's fun. And it's very complicated, but I think... I think it's it's going to be a good one. Just in case you missed it, um, this series is on God and war. It's very 16th century. It's very dramatic. Uh, we we brainstormed several titles for this, but we thought let's let's just go ahead and go dramatic because this is such a dramatic period of history. Why not tell it like it is? Always a fan of the drama. If there's ever drama to be found, it's going. Well, I mean, if there's ever drama to be found anywhere in history, I think it it does lie in the 16th century and. it's chaos and it's brilliant let's just see where this series takes us i know we've got we we had a lot of fun um planning it and kind of putting some ideas on paper but um yeah we actually had to scale back like we we had so (laughs) many things that we could have talked about this series but we keep reminding ourselves that ultimately what we are here to talk about are 
the six queens are six to your queens. So even though we're going to be talking about the English Reformation and the Reformation as a as a whole movement, um, we really want to stick with the the queens to see how they reacted to the Reformation, but also how their lives were shaped by it. Because oh boy, were they shaped by it! <laughs> if anybody's lives were. Yeah, and this was I think really important for us to start with. I mean, I know we did series one about spaces and that was sort of setting the scene, but this was historically really important for us to start with because so much of the Tudor era and the 16th century as a whole, not just in England, is shaped by this. So it's really important, I think, that we talk about this, we lay the groundwork because then so much of what we say in hopefully later series, um, you can refer back to this and you can know what we're talking about and we're all on the same page like i said it, it is a lot but i think it's it is important because you can't understand anything really that happens properly in in this period without talking about especially religion it is the pivot point for everything yeah and i don't i don't it's not an exaggeration to say that it, it impacts politics social lives intellectual thinking economics like down, oh, down to like like every corner of everybody's life is is impacted by it and the reformation really blows all of that up this series we're going to be hitting you over the head with this idea of chaos everything's changing everything's changing quickly no one knows what's up your life could be on the line if you are accidentally doing something that you didn't even know was a problem like uh yeah it's chaotic so keep keep that in your head that's something that we really want to get across this series absolutely so really what we're talking about when we're talking about the reformation is people who were critical of the catholic church and its practices because the catholic church in the 16th century was at the heart of everything it was a major religious economic and intellectual and political institution it kind of had a hand in every single pie imaginable and i'm not talking strawberry or blueberry here everything that anybody could impact it could impact on someone it, it did and what people like martin luther and also other thinkers or reformist thinkers uh, like john calvin people like zwingli in switzerland they were all starting to question the practices of the catholic church and kind of what was going on uh it's kind of worth pointing out here i think when we're talking about the reformation and reformers and things like that just for the purpose and ease of everyone listening we're going to be referring to the, the, the group of people who were who were doing the reforming and were kind of involved with it as reformers not protestants just for the sake of continuity just because it's a little bit easier that way it's kind of hard to summarize all of the beliefs of the reformists in like what do we have here 15 minutes um because it goes down to the little tiny differences as more and more people start to get involved in the debate i guess um like luther really kicks it off and not to say that he was the first but he's the one who really you know lights the fire but then so many other people get into it that it comes down to really really tiny details like an entire sect of what we would call Protestantism could be just because of one simple difference in how exactly you you worship on Sunday. So when when we talk about this today, we're not going to try to hit 
all the points. We are speaking in fairly broad terms just to provide a more general understanding of the period. Whole scholars <laughs> dedicate their whole lives to studying all of this, so we are no way competing with any of them. We're just going to lay the groundwork for you. In that spirit, I think it's worth talking about some of the major points that differentiate the reformers from the Catholic Church. Uh, justification through faith alone is a really big one. Basically, if you accept God and Jesus and you worship them well, then that's it. You're, you're, you're set for the rest of your life. Whereas there was a lot of corruption, I think it's fair to say, in, in the church at the time. The Catholic Church had been pretty much ruling Europe for the last thousand years. And their power had been cemented, but they were look always looking for ways to keep in power. So there were things like, you know, you you could pay to absolve your sins, whether through uh, what's called an indulgence, which is basically like a get out of purgatory free card. Or when you look at the, the Renaissance, for example, all the, the art movement of the Renaissance, all these people who are commissioning public works or works of art for religious purposes are probably doing so to get in with God and better their chances of a good afterlife. So there's this belief of pouring wealth, I suppose, into your faith and sh being very showy about your faith. There's a lot of excess um, in relation to the Catholic Church when people like Martin Luther and the reformists are starting to think, hey, maybe God is actually more satisfied by a pure, more humble life. These these criticisms weren't just coming from from nowhere for people that were a little bit um, frustrated. They were kind of long held grievances that were just kind of gaining more and more traction. And I think one of the really important things that's worth noting is that Martin Luther himself was actually a monk and had a doctorate of theology, which he gave from Wittenberg University in 1512. Yeah, 1512. So he, he was a man who was very well educated and very much in the know about practices of Catholicism and faith. And what he was seeing wasn't matching up with what he, he, he knew. His, his frustration was coming from corruption within the church and then also people who just weren't understanding what on earth they were practicing. Yeah, because one of the biggest changes I think that's starting to come from this period and a little bit before is that people are finally actually reading the Bible. Um, it's being translated from the Latin, which is the sort of accepted church language or, you know, the Greek, depending on where you are, but always a, um, a, a language that is associated with higher education. So only like monks or really well-educated people, nobility could read the actual text of the Bible. And even then, I think it was sort of like a diluted form. It was specific prayers and psalms and whatever. But now people are starting to translate the Bible into the vernacular, um, so into German and French and even English. So, um, yeah, if, if I was going to boil it down to one word, I'd say accessibility is another huge theme of the reformers. Um, you don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to be told what's in the Bible. You're not being taken advantage of that way you you know what's there you know what you need to do and you're able to have this actual relationship and i think the, the point you made actually about um the intercession of priests and about uh religious um kind of uh individuals is also really interesting and also really important to understanding some of the central tenets to reformist um attitude and things like that so i think one of the big ones is um with the eucharist so that's that is a can of worms people oh boy <laughs> yeah remember when we were talking about how like the little details can affect an entire sect of religion 
here we go. Strap it. I'm going to your hats, kids. It's going to get messy. Right. <laughs> the Eucharist. I'm going to say it fast. I'm going to say it once. Keep up. Pay attention. There'll be time for questions at the end. <laughs> so with the Eucharist, with the Catholic beliefs and things like that, what would happen at Mass would be um, you'd have the blood and the body of Christ, which is literally represented in a glass of wine and some bread. And then what would happen would be this kind of mystical, magical thing that would take place. It would literally transform into the blood and the body of Christ. So this act of the literal transformation is quite handily summed up in one word, transubstantiation. Mm, That's a good uh, trivia word. What the reformists were thinking was they were pretty much on the same page about this, which is some kind of miracle in itself. Yeah, I think it boils down to the reformers don't necessarily believe in literal miracles. Yeah. Um, So they I think they saw a lot of them. I'm not speaking for all of them because, again, (laughs) it gets it gets messy. But like you said, the majority of them are on the same page here where they don't actually believe in the sort of magic trick of the priest transforms the wine and the bread into the blood and body of Christ. Yeah. They appreciate the symbolism of the mass and how it comes from scripture of, you know, the story of the Last Supper. But they're not so keen on the whole, you know, this literally transforms. And that doesn't, that's uh, the, the... The Eucharist is the best representation of that, but they also believe that in other ways. Um, Like they're very much against making pilgrimages to the shrines of saints in the hopes that that saint will magically cure you of whatever disease you suffer from. Like they they don't believe in any kind of stuff like that, the magical side of the the religion. Absolutely. Things like the intercession of saints. Nope. I think it's straight-talking religion, really. I think that's what they're asking for. It's getting rid it's, of the myth and rid of, rid of the magic. Yeah, in in their eyes, it's getting back to the simplicity of it. You know, going the heart of the teachings of Christ is that it shouldn't be hard. It was getting back to, does, is that in the Bible? Did Jesus say that? Oh, no, okay, then let's not. What the reformers are effectively asking people to do well, to change their entire belief about their relationship with God and with Jesus. And that's not an easy thing to do. Like you were saying, this is a society that is not messing about with religion. It is everything to everybody. What they were doing uh, and, you know, saying with this was a big deal and it upset a lot of people. And, I, and I, you know, it, it what it triggered in terms of the makeup of society and the way that um, Christianity is kind of, the, the paths it's taken, has had long-lasting and reaching effect. You know, th- there'd been other pockets before people like Luther and Calvin and then, the, you know, the English Reformation as well. Um, there'd been kind of pockets of people who were trying to posit these ideas, but they weren't lasting and they weren't holding. This captured people's imagination in a way I don't think we're ever really going to fully understand. I think it's interesting, though, to consider, um, you know, because we talk about the queens and nobility on this podcast. That's the point. But it's interesting in this case to consider the what was going on on the ground, like what what a day to day look like, because all these people are fighting it out and and the higher ups but like what did it look like at your local church you know and especially in germany which is a mess anyway but 
Germany religiously in the 16th century is just constantly changing. Nobody really knows what's going on. Uh, you could you could be at church one Sunday and then the next week you go in and all of the statues of saints have been destroyed and you're like, OK, we're not doing that anymore. Um, you just you just don't know. And uh, one of the cleanest examples I think I found of that recently is I was reading the new biography of Hans Holbein by Franny Moyle, which is excellent for those who haven't read it. But there was an instance when Hans Holbein was at home in Basel in Switzerland, which again, another hotbed of the Reformation. There's a lot of different ideas <laughs> swirling around. And Holbein basically gets a citation because he did not take communion at church one week. And we we talked about it, how taking communion or do, you, do I take it? Do I just show reverence to it? Do I even believe that it's a thing? It's it's up for debate. And it's one of those things that can define a completely new religious sect, whether or not they believe in this or not. So Holbein's response to being getting a citation for not taking communion was basically like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So please tell me and I'll go ahead and do it. You know, like at this point, I have the feeling that a lot of people who are just trying to exist are like, I don't even care anymore. Just tell me if I should drink the wine or not. With Holbein, I think he's a really special example because this is not a, this is not a silly man. This is a man who's a, adept to, you know, the world of politics and playing the game of court. If, so if someone like him, who is working in the inner sanctums of, you know, royal courts and things like that, if he's getting confused, what hope does anybody else have? When we when we talk about the craziness and the chaos of the Reformation, we're we're really talking about on the continent and I think specifically in Germany. And that was a place where all these reformed believers could now start to actively say what they thought. And it was a, a safer haven for people who wanted to translate the Bible into the vernacular and have Sunday services in the vernacular languages and people who wanted to have these discussions of um, theology and what what's actually in the Bible. Whereas in England, everything was still very underground. It Not to say it wasn't there. There were people who were bringing it over. There were some people, um, I mean, even throughout English history, like uh, the Lollards, for example, who who already sort of thought this, but were were very stifled. Uh, but in England, you know, it was it was still dangerous. England was still a very Catholic nation. And it wasn't just, you know, you getting a citation for not taking communion last Sunday. It was the difference between life or death. If you spoke out, you could be tortured and killed. Again, we don't exaggerate when we say that this is pretty much the only time in history when like the historical fiction romantic view is the truth. The, the reformed religious thinkers took advantage of this movement to get rid of the Pope. And oh boy, did they. Now that we've introduced you to what was happening on the European continent and the sort of dumpster fire of conflicting beliefs going on there, let's transition to England. Because as we touched on, 
the English Reformation in terms of spirituality and ideological beliefs was a little bit more underground. But that really started to change when Henry decided that he wanted a son and a new wife and everything just kind of exploded into a separate dumpster fire in England. It's just sometimes when it comes to, you know, the Reformation, as I find, whether it's in Europe or in England, I find them both so interesting. But sometimes with the English one, I find myself lightly banging my head against the wall because I don't understand what you were trying to achieve here. Yeah. <laughs> and as we said, it is really one of the rare moments in history when the historical fiction view of he turned the world upside down because he loved her that much is actually pretty accurate. Um, because I don't think it gets stressed enough, especially not in like historical fiction, drama, media. Henry did not actually become a reformer. Nope. Henry's reformation had absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. <laughs> I want that on a t-shirt. <laughs> no, it, it really, it really didn't have, like you just said, n- n- nothing to do with religion. And I think, When you get into the nitty-gritty of the English Reformation, as we are about to do, you're welcome, um, you can see that. There's a lot of flip-flopping that goes on with the English Reformation and a lot of changes. And I think we see a very changeable Henry, depending on who who he's surrounding himself with and what his mood is of the day and things like that. And what is politically expedient for those who he surrounds himself with. And really... What's going to get him his divorce? Or annulment, I should say. In the early part of his reign, actually, he was the one of the darlings of the Pope. He and the Pope were, were really tight. And when Martin Luther came on the scene, this goes back to when we were talking about how if, if anything bad happened in, in Europe and it had anything to do with religion, the Catholics were all like, you know, damn that Martin Luther. Henry went to the point where he actually wrote a pamphlet about how awful luther is oh he hated him hated him with a passion yeah so he wasn't like you know looking on to what was happening in europe like oh wow like it it was time for change good on you guys it was he was absolutely disgusted with everything that was happening to the point where the pope awarded him the sort of arbitrary title of defender of the faith he was ardently in favor of pilgrimages and you know the veneration of saints so that's the yeah act of he made prince. a couple of pilgrimages himself especially yeah. where concerns um fertility and childbirth yeah not to say that he wasn't um you know intelligent by any means but he did have the personality where it was like the last person who talked to him is the opinion he has oh um, yeah, like Cromwell, you can clearly see sort of, and Anne Boleyn to take take advantage of that. And uh, I think interesting to note that Anne Boleyn and Cromwell were Thomas Cromwell were both very ardent reformers, and somewhat predictably for reformers, couldn't agree on everything. Yeah, I just think it's important to note that Henry himself. Though people convinced him to take certain actions that were in line with reformed beliefs, you cannot say that he was like a figurehead of the Reformation in the same way that Martin Luther was. He was somebody who needed a thing to happen 
and took advantage of political circumstances of the time. So, yeah, the English Reformation happened because Henry decided that he needed to marry again in order to produce an heir and secure the dynasty. And the only way to divorce your wife or annul your marriage at the time was to go through the Pope. The Pope did not want to annul the marriage between Henry and Catherine because you don't really annul marriages that have happened for 20 years and have produced numerous children, though they died. Um, so it didn't go well for Henry. And so all of the reformers around Henry, namely Cromwell and Anne Boleyn, said, well, you could just get rid of him then. And Henry liked the sound of that. Again, you can see that in the way he tries to dictate his religious policy. You know, he was very much opposed to what he considered radical reformation. So in the early days of the English Reformation, like we said, these these whisperings were in England. They didn't escape England, but they were very much underground, um, especially in the universities. There were whole little sects of, um, you know, theological debate, especially like at Cambridge. A lot of uh, reformed clerics in England seem to come out of Cambridge where people can freely talk about this stuff within that circle. But it is understood that if anything was to get out, there would be people like Cardinal Wolsey, who was in charge pretty much at the time, who would hear about it and who would take action against them, namely probably torture. So it was still, you know, people who had reformed beliefs or were developing them, especially people who were coming from the continent, because we have to remember London at this time is starting to become a very global city. All of these beliefs are being imported along with all of these merchant goods. So there was the understanding that England was still a bit, you know, that they were they were leaning towards starting to become part of this whole conflict, but they weren't quite there yet. Um, the big players in the early days are Cardinal Wolsey, who is Henry's right hand man and who gets his authority directly from the Pope. So he's doing nothing to contest anything that will give up his power. Uh, and then you have people like who are aligned with Henry, like Sir Thomas More, who are protecting the, the church at all costs and who are trying to protect England from this wave of what they considered heresy that's coming over from the <laughs> continent. But then it all it all just completely falls by the wayside when Henry decides that he he wants to get rid of Catherine of Aragon and suddenly you have Wolsey trying to scramble to figure out how to make that a thing and the reformists come in and give Henry this ability to not only get what he wants in terms of a divorce but never have to go through a higher power i.e. the pope ever again and even though Henry had been the pope's golden boy and had rallied against Luther and gotten that title, somebody like him really didn't like the idea of having to bow down to a, what he considered a foreign power. So the Pope's got to go. I want to pick back up on Cardinal Wolsey because I just think he's such a delicious like example of just everything the reformers were just saying, this is what's happening in the church and we need to make it stop. Introducing the players as it were, um, starting with Team Catholic in the, the early days, like in the 1510s, who are actively trying to uh, stop the reform, reformation from happening. And I think Wolsey's pretty, pretty chief among them. 
So I think with Wolsey, he stands the most to lose 100% with, with the Reformation, with the annulment and things like that, because he's playing a game of two two very different halves. On the one hand, he is the papal legate in England, so he is the Pope's representative in England. And then you've also he's also then Henry's right-hand man. So trying to keep those two spheres happy is inevitably going to be a losing game. Yeah, he's also a pretty supreme example of the kind of corrupt clergy that the Martin Luthers are getting pissed off about right um he and even even the catholics in england are are not too thrilled with wolsey he is a cardinal he is chiefly a holy man and yet he's angling for political advancement he's pretty much running the country you know we have to remember henry the eighth was a teenager he was 18 when he became king so wolsey's pretty much doing the ruling for him yeah um in in all but name and he's building, he's getting rich, he's building these palaces for himself, like Hampton Court. He's accruing all of this wealth and then using it, not necessarily always for charitable goods. There's not just religious, you know, stuff going on with Wolsey. It's it's pretty much all political at this point. And so purists like Thomas More, not to say that Thomas More wasn't also angling for political advancement, but that's <laughs> people like Thomas More who were more interested in preserving the church as a holy institution and not just as a means of gaining political power were really pissed at Wolsey because they thought he was taking it too far. So let's meet our reformed cast. We've touched on a couple of them already. Thomas Cromwell, I think, is really the the big one. He is pretty we're we're pretty sure he he was sympathetic to the reformed cause he spent a lot of time in europe so it's not surprising but you can really see him being very clever about the way he tries to get his beliefs into the mainstream in england like he recognizes this need that henry has to get a new wife and therefore heirs he comes up with this idea of, okay, well then let's separate. And once that's achieved, maybe we can we can bend Henry into doing some other stuff as well. Like you say, Cromwell's very clever. He, he's a lawyer first and foremost. And I think the key to surviving the Reformation, I mean, he ultimately didn't, but the key to surviving it for as long as possible is understanding Henry. And Cromwell did a stand-up job of understanding Henry, understanding kind of where his mindset was a lot of the time, and how to interpret it to his own gain. So the next couple of people on the list, I'm sort of going to talk about in tandem because they're related in uh, sort of their roles and their backgrounds are Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and Hugh Latimer, his his friend from Cambridge. These were part of the Cambridge crowd of theologians who had reformed beliefs, but were sort of laying low until their moment came and their moment came. Uh, Cranmer was specifically aligned with the Boleyns. So when Anne Boleyn came into power, uh, he came with her and he rose to Archbishop of Canterbury. Latimer comes in a little bit later and he's similar with Cranmer in that everyone kind of knows where he stands and he's he's trying to very slowly let the reformed beliefs bleed into the mainstream in England. So yeah, just goes to show you that what's happening in Europe on the continent, it's not that it's not happening in England, it's just much more of a slow process. And 
Henry is really the the obstacle in that. I do sometimes like to think about what what the Reformation in England would have looked like had Henry not been so opposed to it or after it stopped suiting him. I don't know if it ever would look as so explosive as it what it did in Europe. But I don't. Maybe I'm wrong, but it's just interesting that that was such he was such a major obstacle that we just don't know. So then I think that really begs the question: What about the queens? This is Six Queens podcast. We have not forgot about them. I promise. We just wanted to set the stage a little bit just to show you that the queens were very much part of this world. They were reacting to this world. They had their own opinions and they were very loud opinions. So, yeah, your question, what what if Henry wasn't there, I think really translates to the queens because we also see how the queens are reacting to Henry as an obstacle, but also they're changing him um, depending on their own personal beliefs. I think if we, we start with Catherine of Aragon, I think she, she's nice and easy. We know exactly where she sits. And I think yeah. the, the uh, Catholic figurehead pretty much of oh, the entire English Reformation. Like, I know we went through the list of other Catholics and, you know, Thomas More's a biggie, but like Catherine, man, she's the she's the main cause. She is the queen of the Catholics, one might say. Her, her, her and Anne Boleyn feel the effects of the early Reformation more the, the most really but I mean for Catherine I think it's more like ultimately of course it goes back to her very firm belief in God but it's also the way she was raised her whole world is just completely shattered so the fact that she really she sticks to her guns in this way just shows how for some people it isn't all about the the power and clinging to power it's about sticking to what you personally believe we can't talk about um, Catherine of Aragon and the religious reformation without Anne. She like, she is the yeah. co- I I mean I think it's fair to say she's the cause of the English reformation. Henry's infatuation with her is just unstoppable. It's an infatuation with her but it's also an infatuation with the world that she is promising him. And yeah. for Anne that includes a lot of reformed beliefs. What Anne did so brilliantly was that she wasn't qu- necessarily quiet about her view. I think she's a bit like Cromwell in that sense, but like she wasn't quiet about her review, uh, her reformist views. She just knew when and how to play them and with who to oh, maximize their 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 impact. That then leads on to Jane Seymour, who we we've spoken about before is almost the anti-Anne in the sense that when it came to religion and you know doing her wifely duty was not as outspoken definitely more catholic traditionalist leaning than Anne as opposed to Anne who's whispering all this heresy in Henry's ear Anne of Cleves is really interesting to me too because um Anne comes from a country that has adopted, let's say, Protestantism as their state religion. So when Henry marries her, it's for the specific purpose of allying himself with another Protestant, quote, nation. So Anne is interesting in that sense of uh, her whole identity is enveloped in her reformed belief in the way that Catholicism is the only thing Catherine of Aragon has ever known Protestantism is the only thing Anne of Cleves has ever known. It's interesting because I think while Anne of Cleves is definitely more Lutheran aligned because, like you said, that's how she's been brought up, we don't really know that much about her religious convictions. We do know that they were somewhat malleable because during Mary's reign later, 
and actually converts to Catholicism. Again, that's not to say that we have any strong indication of her beliefs one way or the other. I mean, Mary was actively like persecuting people who didn't convert to Catholicism. So we, you know, we can't say that for sure. So, I mean, I, I know we've been going through these chronologically, um, so which would then naturally take us on to wife number five, which is Catherine Howard. But much like the rest of her life, we don't really know anything about her convictions or anything like that. I mean, I think it, it's just it's hard to say one way or the other. She never did anything that suggested any strong feelings. Um, I mean, obviously, we know her her family, the, the Howards, were Catholic, yeah. but they were sort of the the in-between group where they didn't necessarily give up their beliefs, but they didn't challenge Henry either. So much like Jane Seymour, I imagine Catherine was willing to kind of go with the flow there. Wife number six. I know she's your favorite, um, isn't she? I don't have favorites. I think that's counterproductive. (laughs) But I do, I admire her sticking to her beliefs. And I think the approach that she takes to her reformed beliefs is much more of um an intellectual movement rather than just just fighting about how we worship god it's actually like let's let's study and let's read together and she had these little like prayer circles when she was queen um which is just if challenges were levied against her you know oh it's an intellectual pursuit it's an educational pursuit rather than uh, let's attack this head on get involved in the politics and the nitty-gritty of it yeah and Henry was a smart guy and Henry was a sucker for a good theological debate so she really used that to endear herself to him where okay maybe they didn't necessarily agree on every point of religion but they could have a really good healthy discussion about it a really good intellectual conversation about it and Henry loved that kind of stuff so they really connected over that I know we've kind of gone through those really quickly what I think we, it is worth touching upon is that with people like Jane Seymour and Catherine Parr, they knew where the line was, but that does not that is not to say that they did not cross it and almost get themselves in a lot of trouble when it came to religion. And I know we're going to be coming back to this in a later episode, but, you know, and so there, there were moments where they did overplay that hand, but it wasn't to their ultimate detriment and downfall because, again, they knew, OK, enough's enough. Let's take our, t- t- like, take our foot off the gas. Unlike someone like Anne Boleyn, who kind of helped spearhead the Reformation, potentially her greatest triumph, but also the source of her downfall. In more ways than one, the later queens have the advantage of coming after Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn and can understand the example set by them in terms of what not to do and what the lines are not to cross. And I think religion definitely is one of those lines. So looking ahead to the rest of the series, uh, as we said, the theme of the series is God and war. So we're going to be talking about the Reformation and how heated it gets. We hinted at a lot of future topics already. Um, We're going to be talking about the religious rebellion, like the Pilgrimage of Grace. We're going to be talking about a little bit more about the Queen's personal beliefs and how they manifested. So like Catherine Parr and her all of her writings and everything. But we're also going to be talking about instances when the queens themselves got involved in war. So maybe not religious war, but war in general. Uh, Lots of really good episodes to come. We are really excited to talk about some of these things. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening to the Six Queens podcast. In the next episode, Kate and I will be discussing the great matter, Henry and Catherine of Aragon's divorce. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, subscribe to the podcast apps and leave a review. Long live the queens.